Well, tonight we are uh, continuing our study of knowing God, and we're looking at chapter 6 this evening, He Shall Testify. And the focus of chapter 6 is on the person of the Holy Spirit. And so just kind of walking back the last few chapters, we can see kind of his design in what he's doing in this section of the book, and that is he's wanting us to know God, and so he's talked about the Father. Last chapter, he uh, talked about God incarnate, the Son. And this week, he's talking about the Holy Spirit and the ministry that he has uh, for us as God's people. And one of the things that he says toward the beginning of the chapter is he says Christianity rests on the doctrine of the Trinitas or the threeness, the tripersonality of God. And he kind of uh, laments the fact in the beginning of the chapter that the Trinity doesn't receive the attention that it should in the church. He says, uh, you you are probably hard pressed to find very many sermons on the triune relationship of God. And he says that's uh, that's a fault because the, the whole Christian faith rests on this doctrine. Without Christ being the God man, we would not have salvation. Without the Holy Spirit, we would not be uh, regenerated, born again into the family of God. And so Christianity, the whole faith, rests on the doctrine of the Trinity. And he talks about the fact that in John chapter 1, before John ever talks about who Jesus of Nazareth is, he begins by going backward into eternity past to show us this triune relationship between the Father and the Son. And he talks about how the Word, the eternal Word of God, was there with God at the beginning. And so there's a relationship between God and the Word, such that we can make a distinction of relation between God and the Word, but also make a, an identification between God and the Word, because God is the Word. The Word was God. And so there is a relation between the two, but there, there's also an identity uh, between God and the Word. And he says, John, that is John the Gospel writer, he sets this mystery of one God in two persons, at least two persons at this point in his Gospel, God and the Word. He says he sets these two persons at the head of his gospel because he knows that nobody can make head or tail of the words and the works of Jesus of Nazareth till he has grasped the fact that this Jesus is, in truth, God the Son. And so John's one of John's main emphases in his gospel is the deity of Christ. But interestingly enough, John, the gospel writer, also gives us the greatest insight into the third person of the Trinity, of the Holy Spirit. When Jesus is meeting with his disciples in the upper room in John 14 to 16, there is an extended discourse there in which Jesus talks about the coming ministry of the Holy Spirit. And so John gives us some insight into who the Holy Spirit is and what he will accomplish when he comes. And so Jesus, in the Gospel of John, describes another comforter. And the, the impression, the, what we get from the words of Jesus in discussing this other comforter in John 14 to 16, is that, first of all, he is a person. So this is not just some 
force, not just some influence, not just a power, uh, but it is, in fact, a person, a, a relational being who is one with the Father and the Son, but yet is distinct in terms of relation and role within the Trinity. And so Jesus says he is someone who will come. He is a person, the third person of the triune God. He talks about him in this language of a comforter. And there are several different ways that this word can be translated. And you can even see that by picking up different translations of the Bible. The, the Greek word is parakletos, which if we're just to break down kind of the etymology, the roots of that word, it is someone who is called alongside of someone. But that the, the real meaning of that can take on different forms depending on the setting. And so for someone who is grieving, that person who's alongside of you can be a comforter. But for someone who is in a court of law, that person next to you can be an advocate, can be a defender. Uh, for some, so it just depends on the context. It is someone who is with you, alongside of you, to help you in whatever situation that you're going through. And so he is an advocate. He is a comforter. And what Jesus says is that he will be another comforter. And the word that he uses there, Greek has two different ways of referring to another. There can be another of a different kind, or there can be another of the same kind. And the Holy Spirit is a comforter, an advocate of the same kind. Of the same kind as who? Of Jesus. So Jesus is going to come and fulfill his mission, give his life on the cross of Calvary, rise from the dead, but then he is going to return to the Father. And upon returning to the Father, he says, I am going to send you another comforter. He is going to be like me. Just as I have comforted you, just as I have stood by you, just as I have helped you, advocated for you, taught you, there's going to be another one like me who is going to come. And so he's going to care for you. And he is going to be the spirit of truth who will testify of me and show you the truth and lead you into the truth and remind you of the things that I have said. And so one of the things that Jesus talks about in John 14 to 16 is that this Holy Spirit is going to be someone who will be with every child of God throughout their lives. And if you think about it, that is actually an incredible benefit, even above, I don't know if I could say it this way, I want to be careful how I say it, but it, it is a benefit that is special, unique, that is different from the, the physical presence of Christ with his disciples. So Christ, the God-man, with his disciples, there were times when he would send them out and they were not with him physically present. But the language of this other comforter in John 14 to 16 is not only will he be with you, he will be in you. A constant, ever-present person of the Godhead with you. And he will care for you and lead you into the truth. In the chapter, he brings the, the concept of Christ the Word and God the Spirit together. And he says, in the Old Testament, God's Word and God's Spirit 
are parallel figures. You often see them in, in the same context working together. God's word is his almighty speech. God's spirit is his almighty breath. Both phrases convey the thought of his power in action. And so he gives some examples from the Old Testament. Genesis 1, 2, and 3. The spirit, or the breath of God, was hovering over the waters. And God said with his word, and there was. And so in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, you see the presence of the spirit above the waters, but you also have the word of God speaking and accomplishing creation. Psalm 33, verse 6. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, their starry host by the breath or the spirit of his mouth. And the interesting thing about both Hebrew and Greek is that the word that they use for spirit is also the same word for breath or wind. Both Hebrew and Greek are that way. And so that's why he has either breath or spirit in brackets after that word. And, and so there is a, a really close relationship between the spoken word and the breath or the spirit of God. We see that close relationship in the Old Testament. In John fourteen twenty six, we read that the Father will send the Spirit in my name, that is, in the name of Jesus, as Christ's deputy, as someone who will carry on the mission that Christ began, doing Christ's will and acting as his representative and with his authority. Just as Jesus had come in the Father's name, acting as the Father's agent, speaking the Father's words, doing the Father's works, and bearing witness throughout to the one whose emissary he was, so the Spirit would come in Jesus' name to act in the world as the agent and witness of Jesus. So their ministries are very similar in the sense that Jesus came to show the Father. The Spirit is going to be sent to show people the Son, to point people to the Son of God, and to speak of his name. And so we see these, these interesting triune relationships that are fleshed out in the scriptures. The Son is subject to the Father, for the Son is sent by the Father in His, that is, in the Father's name. So the Father sends the Son. We also see the Spirit is subject to the Father, for the Spirit is sent by the Father in the name of the Son. So the Father sends the Son, the Father sends the Spirit. But we also have revealed in Scripture that the Spirit comes from Jesus as well. The Spirit is subject to the Son as well as to the Father, for the Spirit is sent by the Son as well as by the Father. This concept is one that I mentioned several Sunday nights ago when we were talking about the idea of the Godhead and the eternal begetting of the Son and the eternal procession of the Spirit. And the phrase that actually separated the Catholic Church from the Orthodox Church was this concept right here of the Spirit being sent not only by the Father, but also by the Son. And so they disagreed about that, and it caused a great schism within the Church. But this concept we find in, in several places in the Gospels where it is not just the Father who is sending the Spirit, but Jesus says, I will send the Spirit, and he will, I will place him on you, and he will come in my name, and he will testify of me. And so we see these unique relationships among the triune God. 
But he says in the chapter, one of the interesting things is that the Holy Spirit is God and yet doesn't receive the attention that he should. So he is divine and yet often ignored. And I would just add to that, he doesn't spend a whole lot of time in this in the chapter, but I would say he is either ignored or he is mischaracterized. And so today in the 20th and 21st century, we see a lot of uh, the rise of the Pentecostal movement, the rise of charismaticism. And in those movements, you have the Holy Spirit talked about a lot. So he's not necessarily ignored in the Pentecostal charismatic movements, but he is mischaracterized. And his role, his work, his main function is not um, given, I think, accurately in accordance with Scripture and what his main mission and ministry is in this age. But then among non-charismatic, non-Pentecostal churches and denominations, I think he's right. The Holy Spirit sometimes is ignored and not talked about as much as he should be. And so he kind of wants to remedy that in this chapter. He says the person and work of the Holy Spirit are largely ignored. The doctrine of the Holy Spirit is the Cinderella of Christian doctrines. Comparatively few seem to be interested in it. He says, It is an extraordinary thing that those who profess to care so much about Christ should know and care so little about the Holy Spirit. But many Christians have really no idea what difference it would make if there were no Holy Spirit in the world. That was a profound statement. And just as a test, before you read this chapter, If someone were to put that question to you, what difference would it make if the Holy Spirit had not been in the world? I think a lot of Christians would not be able to answer that question. What what does the Holy Spirit do? What is what's his ministry? What what difference does he make in the church or in my life? And so there's not a strong grasp of that ministry of the Holy Spirit in the church. And he says this is wrong. Because he is God. He is fully worthy of worship and of our attention and of our thinking. He says, how can we justify neglecting the ministry of Christ's appointed agent in this way? Is it not a hollow fraud to say that we honor Christ when we ignore and then by ignoring dishonor the one whom Christ has sent to us as his deputy to take his place and to care for us on his behalf? So he says, by dishonoring the spirit or not giving due attention to the spirit, we're also not honoring the son as we should, because the son is the one who sent him to to be and carry on what the son was doing here in this world. And so he then goes on to teach us and help us understand the importance of the spirit's work. And there are two main areas that he talks about in the chapter. First of all, without the Holy Spirit, he says, there would be no gospel and no New Testament. Without the Holy Spirit, we would not have the gospel. We would not have the New Testament. I would even go beyond that and say we would not have the scriptures at all. We would not have the scriptures. We would not have the gospel if not for the Holy Spirit. And so John 15, these are, this is Jesus telling his disciples about the coming of the Spirit. He says, When the Advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me, and you also must testify. 
So, in other words, there is one of the main ministries of the Holy Spirit is going to be in conjunction with the witness of Jesus' disciples. So they are going to take the truth that Jesus has taught them, the good news of the gospel, the doctrines and the teachings that he has given them. The Holy Spirit is going to come and remind them of those things, give further revelation to the apostles and to the writers of scripture, empower them to to be bold and to proclaim the, the risen Christ. And so there's a close relationship between the testifying of the apostles and the Holy Spirit testifying with and through them to who Christ is. So the Holy Spirit's ministry is one of truth, of truth giving and truth telling. Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. So what? So you can be my witnesses. So the Holy Spirit comes to reinforce, to give the truth, but also to embolden you to speak the truth, to be witnesses in my name to the ends of the earth. John fourteen twenty six, But the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. There are some aspects of John 14 to 16 that I think are particularly related to the apostles. So I don't think that necessarily every verse of John 14 to 16 is to be applied generally to all disciples of Christ. I think there are some of the things that Jesus says there with regard to the ministry of the spirit that are particularly unique to the apostolic role that Peter and John and James and later on Paul will fulfill because the Holy Spirit is the one who will remind them and teach them of the words of Jesus. And the Holy Spirit is the one who will inspire them to write scripture and carry on the truth telling ministry of Jesus. That's not necessarily our role in terms of writing scripture or uh, inscripturating God's revelation, but that was the role of the apostles. And the Holy Spirit would aid them in doing that. And I think this is one of those verses that is specifically related to that mission of the apostles. I'll remind you, the Holy Spirit will remind you of the things that I've taught you. He says in John 16, verse 12, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. So in other words, Jesus is talking about the idea of progressive revelation in the sense that Jesus could not dump on them all at once all that they needed to know regarding the gospel and its implications for the New Testament church. So obviously Christ laid the foundation for that in his teachings, but there would be more revelation to come even after his death and resurrection. And that's what the Holy Spirit was going to be sent for to, to continue to tell them and teach them the things and build on what Christ had taught them to provide the further truth foundation for the church. As Paul says in Ephesians 2:20, on the apostles and the prophets is built the church on that foundation with Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone.
And so the Holy Spirit's role is a truth-telling role. Because of the Holy Spirit, we have the gospel. We have the scriptures. We have the New Testament. We have all of the scriptures. We read in 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21, that it's the Holy Spirit who uh, blew, bore along these servants of God who wrote the scriptures. So the Holy Spirit is a a truth-telling, word-conveying ministry. He says, the promise was that, taught by the Spirit, these original disciples should be enabled to speak as so many mouths of Christ, so that they might be able to say of their teaching, oral or written, thus saith the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, in a very similar way that Isaiah or Elijah, Malachi could say in the Old Testament, thus saith the Lord. So this is the Holy Spirit's role for the apostles. The Spirit testified to the apostles by revealing to them all truth and inspiring them to communicate it with all truthfulness, hence the gospel and hence the New Testament. But the world would have had neither without the Holy Spirit. So we wouldn't have God's truth as we have it now without the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That's a pretty big deal, isn't it? What's the Holy Spirit for? What's the ministry of the Holy Spirit? What does he do? Without the Holy Spirit, we wouldn't have the scriptures. We wouldn't have the gospel message. Secondly, the second main area of ministry that he discusses in the chapter is without the Holy Spirit, there would be no faith and no new birth. In essence, there would be no Christians. So, Without the Holy Spirit, there would be no word of God, no truth inscripturated, written down for us. And without the Holy Spirit, there would be no one to believe it. So the Holy Spirit is the one who gives new birth. In 2 Corinthians 4, 4, we read that the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That is our condition. Apart from divine grace, apart from the help of God, we are all left in this blinded condition where we have the word of God because the Holy Spirit has inspired it. He inspired the prophets. He inspired the apostles. But if that word of God is opened before us and we read it, it will be just blank words or empty words on a page that has no effect on our lives, no life-changing effect on our lives without the Holy Spirit doing a work on us. Because we're blinded. John told Nicodemus in John chapter 3, Very truly I tell you that no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. Of course, Nicodemus asks, how does that work? How do you go back inside your mother's womb and Jesus, no, no, no. Talking about that which is spiritual. That which is the flesh is flesh, but that which is of the spirit is spirit. He says, the one who is born again is the one who's born of the spirit. And the spirit blows like a wind where he wants to blow. You you don't know where he's coming from. You can't control it. You don't know where he's going. So it is with everyone who's born of the spirit of God. And without that new birth of the spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. So Christ goes on to explain to Nicodemus that the inevitable consequence of unregeneracy that is being unregenerate, no new birth by the Holy Spirit, is unbelief. He says in John 3.11, You people do not accept our testimony. The gospel produces no conviction in them. Unbelief holds them fast. 
That is the natural state of all people. When presented with the gospel, it will not move them. It will not break their heart. It will not humble them to humbly obey and believe the gospel without the Holy Spirit. So then he says, should we conclude then that preaching the gospel is a waste of time and write off evangelism as a hopeless enterprise foredoomed to fail? That is, if people are this blinded, people are this resistant, well, then what's the point of preaching the gospel? Should we just write the whole thing off? He says, absolutely not, because the spirit abides with the church to testify of Christ. So we have the spirit who goes with us in the proclamation of the gospel to the apostles He, that is the Holy Spirit, testified by revealing and inspiring, as we saw. So he he revealed, he inspired the the apostles to give us the gospel and the scriptures. To the rest of us, down through the ages, he testifies by illuminating, by opening blinded eyes, by restoring spiritual vision, enabling sinners to see that the gospel is indeed God's truth, and scripture is indeed God's word, and Christ is indeed God's son. That's what the Holy Spirit does. As we read in John, Jesus says, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world, right? Of judgment, of righteousness, of sin. He will convict the world. So he says, it is not for us to imagine that we can prove the truth of Christianity by our own arguments. Nobody can prove the truth of Christianity except the Holy Spirit by his own almighty work of renewing the blinded heart. That's a comfort to me, knowing that if I am interacting with an unbeliever, an atheist, a Muslim, a Hindu, agnostic, whatever it is, if I'm interacting with an unbeliever, I don't have to know every fact of science. I don't have to know every fact of historical and archaeological data. I don't have to have every... uh, fact that can be drawn in to apologetics to defend the faith. I don't have to have all of that information. I can present the simple message of the gospel and the Holy Spirit is the one who does the work. Now, I'm not saying there's not a place or a use for those elements of apologetics. I think they can be useful and helpful, but ultimately it's the word of God that is the power and the salvation, isn't it? And it's the Holy Spirit that does it. And so 1 Corinthians 2, Paul tells the Corinthians, And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, that when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. It was common in this first century world, especially in Greek culture, for the orators to be great speakers. In fact, it was an art. It was it was a very highly prized skill to be someone who of great rhetoric, of great oratorical ability. And it was some something that was uh, prized, like actors or entertainers, uh, musicians today. The, the ones who were well-known were the great speakers that could move people, move audiences. But Paul says, I purposefully did not come to you with that, with uh, smooth wisdom, with with great sounding speech, with, with eloquence. I didn't come to you with that when I brought you the testimony of God. He says, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith 
might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. In other words, I intentionally did not want to try to move you with human ability. I didn't want to try to move you with my speaking skills or my knowledge or my rhetoric. I don't want to move you with any of that. I wanted you to be moved by the Holy Spirit when you heard the simple gospel message. And so he says, and because the spirit does bear witness in this way, people come to faith when the gospel is preached. But without the spirit, there would not be a Christian in the world. That's an amazing statement, isn't it? Without the Holy Spirit, there would not be a Christian in the world. So what difference does the Holy Spirit make? Well, without the Holy Spirit, we wouldn't have a Bible. And without the Holy Spirit, there wouldn't be any Christians. So that's a, that's a pretty big ministry, isn't it? And so he deserves our worship and our attention. And so what is our proper response then? He gives three areas where we should think about how to apply uh, this teaching about the Holy Spirit. He says, in our faith, do we acknowledge the authority of the Bible, the prophetic Old Testament and the apostolic New Testament, which he inspired? Do we read and hear it with the reverence and receptiveness that are due to the word of God? So do we take the words of scripture and do we, do we treasure them? Do we hold them up as God's holy word inspired and brought to us by the ministry of the Holy Spirit? Based on what he's teaching us in this chapter, I, I think it would be appropriate, you know, the next time you read scripture to have just a brief prayer, thank, thanking the Holy Spirit for giving us God's word and, and bringing it to us through the men that he inspired to write it down. He says, in our life, do we apply the authority of the Bible and live by the Bible? Whatever anyone may say against it, recognizing that God's word cannot but be true and that what God has said, he certainly means, and he will stand behind it. Basically, this is taking it to the next step. Not only do we accept the authority of the word of God, but then do we apply that authority in our lives? Even in contradiction to the world. And that's, that's very, this is a very relevant message, very relevant question for our day. Because the Bible is severely maligned in our day, criticized, thrown, thrown out, dismissed. That's just ancient babble. Or do we accept it as it is the word of God? And, and are we willing to push up against the grain of the culture and live by the Bible, believing it to be the Holy Spirit inspired word of God? And then he says in our witness, do we remember that the Holy Spirit alone by his witness can authenticate our witness and look to him to do so and trust him to do so and show the reality of our trust as Paul did by eschewing the gimmicks of human cleverness. In other words, are we content? Do we have faith in the Holy Spirit to which it brings us to be content to just give the simple gospel message without trying to... Um, win people over with tricks and gimmicks and entertainment. There's a lot of the evangelical church that is not content to do that. They're not content to let the word be the word and let the spirit do his job to regenerate people through the word. They want to try to win people through entertainment and through gimmicks. 
and my one of my college teachers goes back uh, 27 years I'll remember this for the rest of my life but he made a simple statement that I think is true but how you win them is how you must keep them how you win them is how you must keep them and so if you win them with gimmicks then how are you going to keep them you're only going to keep them with gimmicks you're not going to keep them with strong discipleship in the word of God so how you win them is how you got to keep them so let's win them with the gospel and then you can keep them with the gospel by the power of God through faith unto salvation so let's not rest in our abilities or in human cleverness and gimmicks but rest in the power of the Holy Spirit he shall testify that is the Holy Spirit will testify and so he that hath an ear let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches do you all have any thoughts tonight um, what before you read this chapter what what have been some of your thoughts about the ministry of the Holy Spirit or, or how the Holy Spirit is important in your life if the Holy Spirit didn't stir you you, you wouldn't take and, and become person yeah exactly yeah that's the way I look at it yeah he's, he's got to open our eyes he's got to move us that's right What are some what are some misconceptions out there about the Holy Spirit? Of course, this could take us <laughs> down a long uh, tangent tonight. I don't necessarily want to do that, but but I'm interested. What are what are some um, false ideas or mischaracterizations of the role of the Holy Spirit today? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. And so in charismatic or Pentecostal circles, um, a strong emphasis on some second work of God. So you're saved, but then later on, there's some second blessing or second work that the Holy Spirit baptizes you uh, with his power. And the evidence of that is speaking in tongues. That That's a common belief in charismatic churches. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, that the Lord is sovereign over the giving of gifts. Not everyone speaks in tongues, but yet in the, in the charismatic type churches, there is that expectation that if you're really a mature Christian, that everyone, you'll, you'll speak in tongues and be baptized by the Holy Spirit. But that goes up against what Paul clearly teaches in those passages about the Lord being the one who diversifies and distributes his gifts as he wills. Um, in addition to other problems about it, it, are modern tongues really what the New Testament's talking about? It, it seems to me that in the book of Acts, when this tongue, when this Holy Spirit was at work causing people to speak in tongues, it was in languages that people could understand, not in gibberish or babble that people can't understand. So there's a lot of issues with the, the way that the Holy Spirit and his ministry is talked about in charismatic churches. But also, too, I would just say... Uh, in, in relation to our lesson tonight is the one of emphasis. Because not only do I think some of the things that they say about the Holy Spirit are not correct biblically, but also there's way too much emphasis on those aspects of the role of, of the Spirit to the detriment of not thinking about these roles of the Spirit that are very evident in Scripture, of the, the inspiring, revealing ministry of the Holy Spirit and giving us the Scriptures in the illuminating, regenerating work 
of the Holy Spirit in giving new birth, those things are sidelined in charismatic churches. And the more ongoing supernatural gifts of the Spirit are highlighted. That's where all the attention goes. And interestingly enough, I think by focusing on what they perceive to be ongoing revelation through the Spirit, they actually undercut an important ministry of the Holy Spirit, which was the inspiration of the Word. Because I think what happens in a lot of charismatic churches is because they're dependent on some new revelation from God, they don't, uh, they don't build their lives as strongly as they ought to on the written Word, which the Holy Spirit gave us. And so I think there's some not only incorrect things, but also some... Uh, wrong emphases in the charismatic church. One, one of the great incorrect things is uh, and it's apparently because of the weakness of the church and its evangelistic uh, efforts today is too many church members think, well, I just don't have the skill to influence someone. Yeah. But it's the spirit that puts it, not the flesh. You know? Yeah. And I don't think Packer addressed this, but Ephesians 5.18 says, and be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Mm-hmm. And right there, a lot of church members, I'm afraid, think, well, I, I, that's not for me. I can't, I can't be filled with the Spirit. But to be filled with the Spirit means to be controlled by the Word of God. Right. And, uh, yeah. We, they overlook, you know, I'm afraid too many overlook that. Yeah. Yeah. What, what if uh, each church had a Room, they had 120 that was filled with the Holy Spirit. You know? Well, and you see, one of the, uh, he didn't talk about it, a lot about it uh, tonight, um, but the idea of testifying and, and the Holy Spirit helping us testify. I think the apostles had a unique role in that because they're writing the scriptures and carrying on the words of Christ. But I think the Holy Spirit has a role in all of us to help us testify. One, as Brother Vinland was talking about and we mentioned tonight, is is taking the word and then going into the heart of a person and opening that person to receive the word. But I think also the Holy Spirit can be used to to give us boldness and, and a courage to share that gospel. And to me, one of the evidences of that is you look at Peter before and after the Spirit. So before the Spirit, you have Peter denying that he even knows who Jesus is. After the Spirit, in Acts chapter 2, he stands up in front of thousands of people and says, this Jesus that you crucified is your Messiah. And so to me, that that Holy Spirit brought about a a certain courage or boldness to to proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ. Uh, And then the Holy Spirit does his job, you know, in, in the heart where that word comes Yeah, kind of preparing the ground. Yeah. yeah. So all we all we're called upon to do is to drop the seed. Yeah. Anybody can drop seed. <laughs> yeah. And, and as I said before, that the ministry of the Holy Spirit in evangelism is a comfort to me because while I think yes, we need to continue to grow in our understanding of the scriptures and and learn more about how to present the gospel, it's not in our power. And, and it doesn't, we don't have to put that pressure on ourselves that it's up to me 
to win a soul. It's, it's Christ. It's through his spirit that that happens. And so there's, it takes some of that, to me, it takes some of the anxiety or the pressure off that it's not about, uh, you know, you don't have to reach a certain quota. You know, it's just, just give the message and, and the Holy Spirit does his work.